What is up, fine people of the internet? We are back. It is King Pilled. I'm Matt. That's Cooper over there looking red today instead of green, which I think is I think oh, is good man. for him. And uh, today we've got uh, we've got a great show for you and a guest that I think you're really going to enjoy. Our good friend Jay Burden is uh, is executing the Zoomer takeover of King Pilled. Somehow I'm going to have to figure out how to get a word in edgewise on uh, on this Zoomer takeover between Jay and Cooper. But uh, Jay, how's it going, man? Going well. Zoomers are in control. Uh, trust the plan and all that. But I, I'm excited to be here, guys. I, I appreciate the invite and uh, yeah, glad to finally put this together. Yeah, yeah, likewise. Um, so if this is your guys' first time listening, welcome. Welcome to King Pilled. Uh, I think this is going to be a banger of an episode. Uh, banger emotes in the chat. Get us some beaver emotes in the chat as well. Uh, we got the beaver boy here. Um, actually, I, I want to ask you a question about that. Do, do a little housekeeping here first. Um, if this is not your first time watching, then uh, then welcome also. Please do us a favor and like the stream. And we are, we're streaming on YouTube, on Twitter, and on Facebook, so you can follow us on all those platforms. You can get us there. We're also on, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you, you happen to get your audio podcasts as well. Uh, so today we've got, we've got our boy Jay Burden. And uh, he, he did us the honor of, 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 of uh, um, talking to us first. So um, we're bringing him back. Jay, tell us about the, uh, the beavers. Where, where, where did the beaver thing come from? I think it's a, it's a fantastic, uh, I don't know, like, like, like icon for, for the idea of civilization building, which I think is something we should all be involved in. But where, where did it come from originally? So it's like, like many things, right? Disputed, disputed source. But talking to uh, a friend of mine, great all-time poster, uh, Cody Browning. He's kind of a continually in our circles on Twitter. And uh, there's this video that goes around and it's from one of these like cute animal pages, right? It's like one of those clips that never dies. And it's kind of a human interest story where this beaver has been, you know, rescued by a woman, never been with other beavers before, just kind of living, you know, inside someone's house. And it still has, it's kind of like inbuilt building behaviors. So it's got all its like dog toys and like random household objects. It's kind of piling them up to make a little dam. You know, it's like gnawing on the on the table legs. And so the point in is in that, right, is obviously essentially like you can never get away from what you are. And so I believe at first it started as an anti-trans thing. Uh, <laughs> like obviously the, the wood was was relevant there, <laughs> but essentially it, it's. <laughs> Like I said, it's not a great story. <laughs> and then great. it kind of developed from there to this idea of like, you know, even even in captivity, you know, beavers are building. Uh, and so obviously, you know, it kind of became a more positive thing there. But really, like like many things, it was just a, a stupid joke that just caught a life of its own. And so that that's the origin of it. I, I think I uh, was corrected on air on uh, the two bit podcast where I told, you know, a modified version of the same story. And I think that's right. Uh, to the best of my memory, but I don't remember just to be perfectly honest. <laughs> That's the great thing about some of this stuff is it sort of just, just bubbles up organically and you kind of, nobody necessarily knows where it came from, but it enters the the mythology. It becomes part of the lore. And then, you know, and everyone, everyone knows what it means now. So that's really all that matters. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like I can, t this is a, I can tell you the feel of it, you know, maybe not the actual like literal history of it, but the vibes are, uh, the vibes are right. So this is actually kind of indicative of a phenomenon, I think, that seems to be, uh, I don't know, overrepresented maybe among the Zoomer generation relative to to others. This 
that's sort of a of a meme, like this this internet trafficking culture where you know you have these groups of people that sort of form up organically around some kind of an idea, and then they develop their inside jokes, and then they get inside jokes on the inside jokes. I know Cooper and I have talked about this a lot. What do you has this been your experience? What are your thoughts on that? Oh, a hundred percent. It's one of those. It's one of those things where, and and part of it, I think, is because. And Cooper, I don't know exactly how old you are, but I was going. I was in high school, kind of at the end of high school during the the Trump era, and that's really when the internet changed. And particularly, a lot of the second tier social medias that a lot of me and my friends used went from being like the wild west. You know, you could say anything. Like I remember learning how to. I never, never even seen crack, but I learned how to make crack on YouTube when I was like eight years old. It was just out there. You could find it wherever you wanted. Uh, but point is, you know, that, that was still very much the, the attitude. And then, you know, the, the energy behind Trump was so intense and like that meme culture was so intense, you know, kind of trickling out of the, you know, the darker corners of the internet, but it was everywhere. And then, you know, very quickly there was a censorship wave and the, the memes were always there, right? That's something the internet generated just kind of like by, you know, by virtue of existing, but the, the era of you know internet humor that i kind of associate with that the things that i still find funny are that kind of like reaction to censorship you know like okay what are the creative ways we can basically say what we've been saying the whole time you know and kind of get around you know the censorship you know there's a ton of creativity that basically goes around goes into saying what we want to say but in such a way that you know what used to be susan on youtube or, or zuckerberg kind of won't get you for it you know, so like it, just even phrases like, uh, like, you know, joggers, you know, all of these kind of like, uh, you know, alphabet people, and these are kind of outdated, they probably wouldn't work anymore. But this kind of like iterative process of like, okay, well, we want to have fun, we want to say the things you're not supposed to. But if I type out the word, you know, my account's gone, I have to start from scratch. So it's like, okay, well, we're gonna need to, we're gonna need to get creative. And I think that that kind of creativity within a context of limitation is, is where a lot of that humor comes from, right? Because like you look back at the kind of like Judd Apatow, you know, boner comedies of like the early 2000s and you could get away with anything. <laughs> Thanks, Tricky Wolf. You could get away with anything. And so a lot of it was lowest common denominator, right? It was just like, oh, we can say anything. So it'll go straight to, you know, the sex joke, the poop joke or whatever. And like, there's certainly something to that, but it's also like you kind of, once you reach rock, bottom in a certain way there's kind of nowhere else to go but that limitation of like oh if i touch the third rail i'm gone makes you be a little more creative and makes you have to come up with like euphemisms and like more creative ways to say things and i don't know again i, I may not be representative of it but i think that's where some of the genesis is mm. well <clears throat> i uh i am i am 26 years old i was born in 97 so i graduated 2015 just before the yeah, Trump you're, you're an old then. <laughs> yeah, I'm old. Well, I, I guess to kick this off, I've got a really, really salient question. That hmm. being, what is, or which is, your favorite Spice Girl, and why is it Posh Spice? Oh, uh, see, unfortunately, this goes back to you being uh, older than me. That was before my time. Uh, I, I mean, I think my my best friend's older sisters 
watch the Spice Girls, but I was I was very sheltered and didn't watch television until roughly the like second Obama term. So sorry, I, I got nothing on that one. So I'm going to take it. You don't have anything to add when it comes to like, oh, what's your favorite track off their 1996 debut album? You got nothing? No, sorry. Yeah, my parents weren't even together at that time. I got nothing. <laughs> your you favorite weren't even a sparkle Spice... in their eye. <laughs> yeah, yeah I you're... Say, sorry. I got nothing. <laughs> your favorite Spice Girl is freaking Ice Spice. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. I see the setup. <laughs> I actually, I felt very, very old. I, I learned who Ice Spice was uh, at, at a Super Bowl party. Uh, I was like, oh, who's that weird troll-looking goblin they've got next to Taylor <laughs> Swift? And I think that's Lana Del Rey. And then my brother-in-law, who's slightly younger, was like, oh, that's Ice Spice. I think she's famous. I'm not sure why. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's about as much as I've got of that. I'm really not the person you want to talk to about uh, pop culture. I was about to say, I've got, like, a lot of knowledge of the Blade movies and then, like, really, culture before or after that is just kind of a little, little bit blurry. Yeah, I'm in a similar boat. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm still hung up on you thinking that Ice Spice was Lana Del Rey. <laughs> no, no, I, I knew who Lana Del Rey was. I just said oh. there's like three people, and I'm like, okay, I know you, I know you, <laughs> and there's some kind of goblin between them who apparently is is famous enough to be put in a booth at the Super Bowl. <laughs> there was a tweet that went viral uh, several weeks back from just some kind of like normie person or something. They said that they have a friend that's a, just a, a normie lib. And the person genuinely thought that Ice Spice had Down syndrome and that she was like popular because... <laughs> It was this was like a like a uh, you know we have to we have to elevate the special girl kind of thing. <laughs> I mean, I hate to be the one to say it, but like that's it's a reasonable assumption. You know, like, <laughs> you know how you, you see some people who are famous and you're like, okay, like I know why you're famous. Like that Emily Ratajkowski girl. Like I don't know what else she does. She, her job is to be attractive. You see someone like that and you're like, okay, there's got to be some other angle here because uh, this is one of God's own prototypes. You know they. they, they do that. <laughs> They do not make many of those. <laughs> oh man, you know that this this issue of that you're talking about uh, with the like navigating censorship through creativity. I actually had my own encounter with this here uh, this past week because uh, I don't know how it got started, but for some reason, literally every single tweet of my fucking timeline was about starship starship troopers. And I still don't know why that. It, me too. I don't know why. I, I understand it was like something about like libs who were trying to say that the the bugs were actually the good guys, and everyone started talking about satire and and all this stuff. And I just there were some good takes on it, but I was so tired of hearing about it. I was so tired of seeing stuff about bugs and about all like <laughs> even the memes were getting tiresome. And so I was like, okay, how do I mute this off of my timeline? And I realized that this is this is an absolutely impossible task because. I can like go for I don't know keywords. I can do like bugs and starship and troopers and I can like I can go for the specific uh, terms, but that's not going to get the memes. And then it's also not going to get the this 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 meta level commentary where people start. You can tell when you read it what they're talking about, but but they're not specifically mentioning the thing they're talking about. And it actually turned into a bit of a of a white pill for me. We were this is the this is the white pill power hour, of course. Um, it turned into a bit of a white pill for me that 
this is actually like our this is what we do this is this is this is how it works we you come up with joggers or or um uh suvs or whatever the term is that that happens to be applicable and we understand it there's this linguistic thing where it's it's you're signaling to the in group but you're indecipherable from the out group which then actually puts the out group being the sensors the regime they're actually now reactive to us because they have to try to decipher what we're saying before they can react to it. And I think I think this is a white pill. What do you think? I think you're I think you're 100 percent right. And look, I'm not the biggest Trump guy, but I think that we have to take note as to why the regime reacted so strongly to Trump. And I think the reason they reacted to him is there was that that energy shift. Right. Like they they were no longer setting the tone and setting the pace. And really, the last time that's happened in a U.S. context was uh, Nixon. And I mean, you've seen how he is kind of ritually burned in effigy. And so it's funny, right, to go back to, to Starship Troopers, right, the, the quote at the end, like it, they feel fear. Right. That's sort of the moment when the liberal felt fear. Right. They realized, like, wait a minute, we're not just by default in in the uh in the driver's seat right they are allowed to make decisions too you know and if you've you know you played any sport you've ever been in a, in a fist fight you're you're aware of that kind of shift in energy right where it's like oh now you're reacting you're on the receiving end and again don't get me wrong i'm not the biggest trump guy i don't think trump saves us but i do think that 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 shows that the kind of like eternal thousand year like liberal slide into gray goo is not inevitable right you you can kind of push back at a different level do you so so i was i reached out to you this afternoon and said basically what are what are we what are we going to talk about today and uh you said oh before i forget you have a stream that's premiering here in a little under an hour and a half now. So what we're shooting for is about an hour and nine minutes. So we're shooting to take this right up to that. And I've set it to auto redirect. So everyone here can go raid uh, Jay's stream there. Um, so all you have to do is when this, when our stream is over, just stay put, it'll redirect you. And um, you know, I, I understand technology. Um, oh, super chat here from TK $2. He says, I love Trump because those who hate me hate him. Um, what so when you when you said you responded you said let's do a white pill show did you have anything in mind did you have any particular white pills that you've been chewing on lately or are you more thinking in in the broader sense of how uh, like doom isn't going to take us anywhere in order mm. to in order to 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 go anywhere or do anything or build anything or you know erect a civilization out of the smoldering ashes that we live in right now by de by definition, we have to believe that that's gonna that there is somewhere to go. So, like hope and optimism actually become a, a like essential tools. What, do you have anything specific, or are you thinking more generally? Yeah, no, I, I actually I have several I have several specifics, right? Which is the first thing I think is important is to is to kind of contextualize doom and gloom, right? Like you you get and from the really these like kind of like arch like black pill. You know, and a lot of these people don't actually produce anything. They just kind of sit around and, and gripe. And I think not to psychologize that there's this desire to be right about everything. And so it's this idea like, oh, I called it. I know, you know, and it, it's a pretty easy thing to do. But also like we need to contextualize this within the, the kind of cycle of civilization, 
right? That you know, you 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 know, Matt, you're you're orthodox. You're you're quite familiar with this fact that empires end, right? Yeah, like indeed, uh, Constantinople uh, is no longer what it used to be, right? But at the same time, you know, that city ends, that civilization ends. Uh, life on Earth does not end, right? There are seeds of that culture that are kind of you know flung out. Right. There are these there, you know, any number of trees, right? And you see this mostly in the West where they have more wildfires, right? That actually require fire as sort of an essential part of the reproductive cycle, right? To actually like break down the pine cones. You know, and, and there's this idea, and you see it in, you know, kind of like the myth of the Phoenix or anything else, that at a certain point, you know, you need a a, a cleansing fire. Right. Arch, you know, French Catholic reactionary Joseph de Maestra makes this point, you know, that when you've got rot. You know, when you've got something that needs to be gotten rid of, really the only way to, to get out of that is to kind of pay for it and to pay for it in, in blood, right? This is the, the kind of the meaning of the ancient sacrifice, right? In order for you to be cleansed of your sin, you know, there needs to be a, a blood price paid for that. Obviously, the ultimate version of that is Christ, but a smaller version of that is, you know, a particularly nice, you know, lamb or something that you slaughter. But at the same time, there's a, there's a civilizational truth in that. And I think that we need to be honest about the fact that the, the decadence of the West is real, you know, and that doesn't mean good. I'm glad that my civilization is crumbling, but it does mean the fact that like, look, like at a certain point, this thing became moribund at a certain point, this thing became sclerotic and to just like, let it limp on forever as this kind of like nursing home civilization, <laughs> like that's not a good thing. You know, we, we, we've lost the, the answer for what is the point of society. Like, why do we keep going? I don't mean you and I, right, Matt, Cooper, Jay, but society as a, as a, as a broader thing. And so it's like, from a certain perspective, it, to me, it's very much like the flood. And it's like, well, the flood is, is God's wrath from a certain perspective, but it's also his mercy, right? Like things had gotten bad. And so I think that that's one perspective to look at this from. Now, also, let's look at what an end is. You know, do we mean like an end to an empire? Okay, that's not the end of the world. Empires have ended. Do we mean an end to a people group? I mean, I don't really see that as super realistic, right? I mean, we still have Italians, right? And they're at least distantly related to Romans. Uh, but to me, honestly, I, I think that we need to, even in our worst case scenario, contextualize what that means. You know, that this isn't some kind of like eternal end to human civilization. Uh, also, like look at what the West is. You know, I'm someone who quite likes that tradition. If we kind of like take a magnifying glass, it's like, well, how many civilizations is that kind of stacked on top of one another? Like very distinctly three, I would argue more than that, you know? So there, there's something there too. But also that same kind of cycle of civilizations, right? Where it's that kind of like, you know, strong men create good times, good times create weak men. And so, so far, like that applies both to a civilization, but also within, you know, generations. And one of the things that I think that is at the root cause of a lot of the demoralization we see is that so many of our problems are easily fixed, right? We are drowning in a bathtub. So you look at, right, San Francisco. San Francisco managed to pull everything together. There's no more poop. There is no crime for the one week that Xi Jinping was in town. And then he goes away and it all comes back. But you saw in that, that this is a choice. Like this, we don't have to live like this. We can say, crime is illegal. We can say, you know, you can't poop outside. That the people aren't allowed to do that. And if you do that, we take you to jail, right? It's a revolutionary concept. 
and you see that I think this is why the 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 regime hates Bukele so much. So a friend of mine, John Slaughter, did a, a write up on the history of Bukele. Really interesting guy. He he's sort of this like outsider elite figure within El Salvador, where essentially El Salvadorian politics had been controlled by what they call the twelve families. So it's like very tight group. And he's actually, I think, only half El Salvadorian. I think his dad is, is technically Arab, hence the name Naib. Uh, but basically, he rose up through the ranks of kind of like the left-wing establishment and just stabbed them all in the back, like just took power. And again, uh, the revolutionary idea to make crime illegal. And uh, well, it turns out when you do that, you have less crime. And now El Salvador, which 12 years ago, or sorry, in 2012, so roughly 10 years ago, was more dangerous than Syria, uh, Iraq, and Afghanistan, which at the time were all effectively active war zones. And now, as of you know, as of time of what twenty twenty four, El Salvador is safer than the state I currently am living in, which is a relatively nice state. And again, that's this condition where does that solve the kind of broader picture of decline? No, but so many of the problems that affect you and I are completely optional. Our regime is choosing to do this. And so you could look at that and say, okay, our leaders are mendacious and horrible. They truly are. Uh, But at the same time, these are things that could be reversed. Obviously, not every problem is so easily solved. But at the same time, I think that, you know, if you buy into the idea that this is simply a fact of life, right, that this is just simply how it is, you know, you're sort of, you're letting the regime talk past the sale. You know, you're letting them just assume a premise they want and arguing within their frame. And so, again, I view that as, as kind of a, a white pill, right? Like an, a, the idea that, you know, so many of our problems, they could be fixed. We just have to have someone who's willing to say, like Alexander and the Gordian not, like, nope, just chop straight through it. Disregard the kind of established procedures, solve the problem. And with that, obviously, comes the willingness to take responsibility. Like, I made the choice. I am the man who made the decision. I am the sovereign. Uh, and so, don't get me wrong, I don't necessarily have a, a front runner for that role picked. But I do think that it, it's inspiring from the perspective that, like, look, like, these things could be solved. This is not an intractable problem. It's just that we currently have no one who's willing to do it. Mm. Yeah, it's a political willpower problem. Hundred percent. Political willpower can be generated. I mean, we're we're watching it happen. I have my uh, subdeacon at my church just got back from spending ten days in El Salvador, and he said that the the difference there is palpable. It's there's a baby boom. Everything feels peaceful. It feels upscale. Um, they crossed into Guatemala, I think he said, and then uh, coming back into. El Salvador, the border patrol in Guat, he said that the difference was stark just in terms of, of trash and graffiti and, and the caliber of people, just the spirit was, 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 was stark. And then coming back in to El Salvador, they were with uh, uh, a guy with them who is from El Salvador and coming into El Salvador, the Guatemalan border patrol guys were basically trying to extort a hundred bucks out of them. They just saw it as an opportunity. Now they wouldn't have done it to the white to the to the, the the white people. They wouldn't have done it to the Americans if they were there by themselves. They were doing it to the guy from El Salvador because he was from El Salvador. Um, but they it's it really stood out to them the contrast between the two. And like you like you said, this is it took what five years. Now, granted, there's there's a, a significant difference in scale between El Salvador and the United States, 
But I think that that difference in scale becomes less important if you if you let go of the notion that we need to save the United States. It's not like, I mean, if we could save the United States, yeah, that would be great. But I'm more interested in providing a future for for my people. And I define my people as my tribe, the people who are closest to me that are within my immediate network. I'd like to get us to the point where we, we can all congregate in one general geographic area. And that general geographic area is going to be my highest concern. As you extend out from there, those other areas are of concern as well, but my, my primary concern is going to be that that local region. Um, do you you mentioned the West and us being a pro, being products of the West? I, I asked that this isn't a leading question. I genuinely have been pondering this myself, and I don't really know where I land on it. So I'm curious for your uh, insight. Is the West what brought us here? Or did we wind up here in spite of it? I mean, I think that, you know, when you when you look at at the West, right, when I say that there are kind of multiple civilizations stacked up on top of each other that sort of have certain things in common, right? What we see is, and to, to borrow a, a phrase from your, uh, from your tradition, right? They say like orthodoxy with local characteristics. There is sort of the West with local characteristics. So you look at liberalism and liberalism likes to paint itself as this sort of universalist faith. Liberalism is basically how Anglos acts towards each other, right? So Nick Land has this great uh, section of the Dark Enlightenment called the Cracker Factory, which is incredibly funny. Uh, but basically what he talks about is the default method of settling score for crackers, right? Essentially like Anglo white people. And it's basically, well, fine. If we can't agree, I'm just going to go somewhere else. And effectively in America, and obviously that that was sort of curtailed by uh, civil war, albeit, you know, there was still a, a, a giant frontier. That's kind of how things were solved, right? So, okay, you're a, you know, you're a iconoclastic Puritan, the king's back in charge, uh, go away to Rhode Island, or go away to New England, like just get away from here. You know, we won't bother you, at least to a minimal level. And so that's kind of a, a cultural mode of being we're quite comfortable with. But that's not how other people, even other Europeans, act. And so it's part of the reason that I have kind of qualms with the word white in kind of its most maximalist sense, because it's like, okay, white really only means something in the American context where it's like us 300 random collection of Europeans and the 10,000 savages who want us to like beat us to death with clubs and scalp us, you know, then that word means a lot. And who knows, maybe those days are coming back. I'm not entirely convinced. Uh, but at the same time, you, you look at something like continental philosophy you, know, you look at something like the French royalists and there are certain, we're drawing from the same root. Right. We have, have certain, you know, just by virtue of both being Christian, by virtue of having that sort of Western canon, have things in common. But a Frenchman and I look at the world in a fundamentally different way, even more so a German. Germans are barely human. I don't even know how they work. <laughs> like genuinely frightening people. But nonetheless, they look at things in a very different way. And so to me, you know, I look at the, the West as, I mean, you could say the West led us here. Right. Because basically all the people doing the leading are, well, I guess not all, uh, a certain percentage of the people doing the leading are from, quote unquote, the West. 
But to me, it's like, well, okay, how much of this is ideology, right? Okay, that that Anglo ideology doesn't really work as well when you extend it to, you know, infinity Guatemalans or infinity Haitians, right? Or is this kind of a, a broader problem, which is that, you know, the West and all of the West, right? Really the world is sort of in this, this period of decline and decadence. And when I look at the nations that are technically on the up and up, you know, like, okay, I guess China is technically in the ascendant. I guess Russia is technically in the ascendant. They still don't seem to have solved entirely the problems of modernity that are affecting all of us, you know, and look like Russia is certainly partially European, but they're their own thing. They're their own game. And they're very much facing the same problems we are. Now, the difference is, and this is a very important difference, their leaders don't seem to hate them. You know, the, the, Putin doesn't seem to despise Russians, doesn't seem to hate the fact that Russians are you know, reproducing. Whereas it seems to me that a large portion of our elite feel that way about us. And so maybe this is a, a true politician's answer. But to me, I mean, you could say the West led us here, but I mean, that's like saying that like the past led us here. Like, yes, technically, but I mean, I could no more rebel against that than like rebel against like my family name. Like, okay, I could stop calling myself that, but it's still what I am. And I think that, you know, as, as a group of people who have a respect for tradition, which I think the thing that unites us. We have to understand that those unchosen bonds, right, the things you don't opt into, arguably matter more. You know, the idea that everything that matters in life is consensual is, is retarded. You know, that that's like, it's tranny logic. And, you know, it's the, the idea of the quote unquote chosen family. Like all of those things are dumb and, and satanic and retarded. I'll just use that word. But when we look back at our own tradition, it's like, okay, like, are there things about it that if I were in a lab designing Ideally, I would have changed. Yes, of course, but I'm not, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of one to in a situation to reckon with it. And it's why, and I'll, I'll shut up after this, but it's why I take my pseudonym from uh, All the King's Men by Robert Penn Warren, which is a, a great, amazing novel, my favorite uh, American novel of all time, best novel of the 20th century. And what he does is this character has to deal with and accept both the legacy of his area, the legacy of his, his his patrilineal line, basically who he is that he did not choose to be, you know, and has to come to, to grips with that. And I think that that's the position that all of us find ourselves in, right? Like we are, from a certain perspective, the, the heirs to a broken tradition, you know, the chain of being that had been extending for hundreds and thousands of years, like someone dropped the ball and we can point fingers as to who did it, but that doesn't that doesn't reforge those links. And so we're in this sort of awkward position of trying to reform a chain starting at link one, you know, and maybe we end up a little bit goofy. Maybe we end up a little bit LARPy, but it's like, okay, what are our other options here realistically? And so again, that goes back to that, that broader question of, of a white pilling, which is like, okay, well, what do you want? Do you want the kind of like easy listless nursing home life that your grandparents and maybe your parents had? Like, okay, that, that might have been more comfortable for you, but that's kind of a, a messed up way to live your life. Like, that's not a good thing in an ultimate sense. But we're, we're in a situation where this like 100, no, not 100 years, 70 years of fake politics, of fake religion has put us in a place where real politics and real religion, and those are sort of one and the same thing, are coming back with a vengeance. And so like we're getting an adventure whether we want it or not. 
Vengeful Son. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, any logic. I love that term. (laughs) It's a writer downer, huh? Mm -hmm. The it seems that this kind of corresponds to you. You mentioned the uh, the the good times create weak men, and what we're what we're seeing seems to be the I, I guess the the downside is we're seeing the consequence of the loss of uh, like like proactive creative masculinity in a society um because the times have been good and because of you know the, the times being good has 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 bred a lot of other things that have led to the the collapse of masculinity but the the white pill side of it would be that when times get hard it just so happens that hard times are the crucible that cultivate strong men and i don't i don't I think that the the that that hard times create weak men, weak men, yada yada yada. I think that that's a it's kind of a useful uh, little aphorism, not necessarily a hundred percent true, but I think the part that is definitely true about it is there's something in the spirit of a man that that wants to rise up against a challenge, that wants to overcome, that wants to conquer. This is part of the philosophy for us when we started our our uh, fitness consulting uh, business. Uh, third position nutrition, if you guys are interested, um, is that men are men are wired to conquer. And if they don't, if they're even even conquering on a micro level has like tangible, positive hormonal effects like testosterone boosting. If you aren't conquering, if you aren't overcoming, if you aren't meeting a challenge and surpassing it, your brain starts to wither away. You You, you cease to be a man. A hundred percent. And really, this is the the insidious, insidi- insidious, excuse me, one-two punch of, of video games and porn, right? Mm. So look, like I, I play video games every once in a while, like probably like once every three, four months. It's something that I used to do more. I, I realize it's not, it's, it's maybe a vice like smoking or drinking, right? Once in a while, it won't kill you. But what it does do is, and, and porn is the exact same way, is it hijacks a natural neural reward circuit. Right. That that part of your brain, you know, as a man, that lizard part of your brain, that's like, you know, basically rewarding you with dopamine for accomplishing things has basically been given a, a much higher level, a much quicker dopamine circuit than anything in the real world can compete with. Right. Like nothing really worth doing can you do in the time that it takes to play a 10 minute Call of Duty game. But in that time, right, you're getting dozens of dopamine hits hmm. and that dopamine hit is designed to reward you when you do something in the ultimate example, right? Conquering a city, you know, doing something awesome, you know, being this like great hero, but on the the micro level, right? It's like, okay, doing something productive, you know, fixing something, accomplishing something. And you're taking that and sort of jacking it up to the nth degree, right? And you're getting that dopamine hit that would have been reward, that would have been reserved for something genuine, you know, a a huge accomplishment, right? And, And kind of dumbing it down to something that you get hit with three or four times in an afternoon. You know, so that's one thing, obviously the, the parallels to porn are obvious, you know, you're getting that kind of like deeply libidinal, like this is the biological purpose of you as a, as an animal. Right. And, you know, you're, you're getting that with no investment, right. No reward as many times as you want with more stimulus than your monkey brain can handle. Right. And in each one of those, you know, we're seeing that, you know, kind of like essential conquering mechanism kind of dumbed down and, and, and pacified. And I talk to my wife about this all the time, where it's sort of like modernity 
doesn't want people, it wants widgets. You know, and so the melting down of you know national and racial characteristics is certainly part of that. But we've also seen both men and women have been desexed. You know that you know we were talking about that conquering instinct, and you know I, I stole this from from Thomas, right? But the the male, the fundamental male, like proving ground was battle. You know, the fundamental kind of right of initiation was was in some way related to combat. That is kind of your your true test of your mettle. And for women, right, that similarly dangerous undertaking was childbirth. You know, that was the thing that sort of made you a, a woman. And so, you know, we're now in this, this era in which both any form of violence, right, even on a simulated level, right, even in kind of a sports or contact, you know, kind of like boxing level is, is anathematized, right? That's evil. That's bad. You'll, you know, there's an African doctor played by Will Smith who tell you you'll get like infinity CTE if you ever play sports, and then on the other end, right, you have the, the message of, of, of feminism, which is effectively like, you know, never have children, never reproduce, that's slavery. And in each case, you know, they're, they're sort of being robbed of the thing that kind of bloods them, that makes them kind of the fulfilled version of what they were designed for. And look, obviously, you know, you could certainly say that there are certain parts of the legal apparatus that favor women over men. But if you look at the actual outcomes, and much like the kind of nursing home life offered to the boomers, the kind of like, you know, girl boss, desexed womanhood is very obviously not treating women well. Women are killing themselves, women are miserable, and men are even more miserable than that. And so I think what we're seeing is the kind of lack of being able to, to truly express you know, kind of like God's design for your, your sex, your gender, whatever you want to call it, is sort of turning people into weird goblins. Right. And so we're seeing this kind of convergence towards ice spice, right? Which is like, what gender <laughs> yeah. is that? Like, did you start out as a woman? You know, how many chromosomes do you have? And, and you see that where it's sort of like, you know, fucking high out. on chromosomes, bro. <laughs> exactly. Right. And it very much is that kind of like, you know, modernity has successfully melted these people down, you know, where there's like, and obviously it wasn't really their fault. You know, I'm not blaming ice spice really in particular. But she sort of is emblematic of that kind of like de-sexed, de, you know, de-racialized, de-cultured person, you know, where it's just like random gray goop. And again, <laughs> I think that really is fundamentally the, the, the product of like the goal of modernity is to separate people from culture, to de-culture mankind. And that means de-sexing them, de-racializing them, de-religious Making them irreligious. Sorry, I ran out of adjectives there. But my point stands. Hmm. Well, ice spice is like virtually indistinguishable to me from carrot top. But that's, <laughs> that's an aside. Carrot top um, got jacked though, to give him credit. Really? Uh, oh, yeah. Have you not seen carrot top jacked? Uh, he seems like he was eating a few trend bologna sandwiches, but like. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I want to see your reaction. Uh, Mr. Bergen, when was, uh, have you ever been in a fist fight? Yes, I have. Yeah, I have. Not in a while. Actually, yeah, not in, not in a while. Not to college. I, if you're a guy and you're suffering from, you know, the, the goon pod, you should go to a bar and get into a fight. I think that would be good for you. What do you think? In Minecraft, I mean, of course. Uh, 
there are certainly worse worse ways to go about it. I, I'm sort of imagining this sort of like pencil necked Reddit freak just like walking into like, <laughs> a hookah bar full of brothers and getting like his teeth kicked in outside. So like I don't know, maybe go to a boxing gym or something and get your your you know get your well, no, don't don't go to a hookah bar. Go to like the old man bar or the gay bar. <laughs> go to the go to the gay bar. Both of these sound like bad ideas for slightly different reasons. The old man bar. Yeah, see, look, that's what I'm saying. Like. Yeah, look at those, look at those, uh, that vascularity on the shoulders. That man is definitely on trend. <laughs> it's all natty, bro. I'm not sure. <laughs> Let me look, I'll look it up. You guys, uh, you guys keep going. Yeah, yeah sorry. So I, I only brought that up as, as really an aside. Uh, and, and this actually, sorry to, to get back to like the weird. He's 58. I'm all natural, yeah. man. Oh, yeah. All natural. All natural. Uh, <laughs> but to, to get back to that, right? Tonkat Ali. The, the bodybuilding phenomenon and, and, you know, Cooper, I'm sure you're aware of this. Like there's a lot, there's a lot of weird bodybuilding zoomers. Like this guy, Sam Selleck, who's just God. blasting steroids. Fucking Literally. Pizza, he's dude. like, whatever, I'll just die. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Which yeah. Is somewhat frightening, but that is sort of, a, I think a reaction to that deep sexing, right? Where it's like, oh, I'm not just going to be mm. a regular man. I'm going to mm. be like a Duke Nukem roid freak and blast my brains on like synthetic hormones from China. And this is the kind of like reverse image of the like Instagram thought, right? With like ultimate mm. plastic surgery, like ah, yeah. hypersexualization. And I think that both of those are sort of in reaction to like the complete and total desexing, you know, where it's just like become the like, re like bean shaped millennial consumer of product, you know? And so, I don't know. That's not a super well-formatted idea, but I think we're going to see I, more and more of that kind of like synthetic masculinity and femininity in reaction to that. I remember a couple of years ago, um, there was a lot of media. Like I think, um, what's that show? The walking dead. Like there were shows like this or that were like that, or the idea of collapse, I think was really appealing, especially to young guys. I, I don't, I don't know if that's still a phenomenon. I don't watch TV or the, the, I don't do the Netflix. I don't, I don't know what people are watching these days other than like fucking Avengers and Disney shit. You sound like a boomer. Case, yeah, I, I am basically. And I always thought that because the whole thing felt kind of hokey and stupid to me, like the walking dead or all these like collapse, everything's collapsing. There was, there was a couple of years there where there, well, that was like everything. And I think that was kind of, at least my theory at the time, was this outworking of that desire for men to be tested. Like, man, wouldn't it be cool if, like, everyone I know died and there were zombies everywhere and I'd have to, like, actually survive? I'd actually have to, like, be resourceful and use my noggin and get in shape or die? Like, what, what do you think of that? What do you think? Yeah, I think you're you're definitely right. And I actually, this goes back to the you know, the, the cracker factory thesis I, I referenced earlier, right? Which is that I think that if we're talking about like really like deep blood memories from people who came from where it's cold, you know, the idea that like winter is coming, like I need to yeah. have things oh, yeah. stored up and prepared. I think that's where that comes from. Yeah, and especially yeah. in America, because the like, obviously the kooky prepper is to a certain degree a, a media creation, you know, particularly in the kind of like cold war era and on, you know, the idea that nukes are going to drop, uh, but there have always been, they're like woodsmen, you know, it's kind of the, the foundational American myth, right? The self-sufficient man. 
Yep. And I think some of that is just your your blood memory telling you like, hey, it's going to get real, real cold. So, you know, stack up some stuff. I think another part of that is that if we're looking at it from the perspective of like, what is the American version of the samurai or the American version of the knight, right? Like our highest, our kind of like highest, uh, you know, heroic ideal. It's, you know, it's, you know, and you see this all the way back to like Nathaniel Hawthorne, right? It's the woodsman. It's the cowboy. It's the guy in buckskin with a musket or it's, you know, Clint Eastwood with a poncho on and a lever action. Or it's, you know, Rick Grimes in The Walking Dead. It's the same kind of like totemic figure of, you know, the the guy who can provide for his, you know, he can protect his family. He can gather resources against this kind of like hostile outside force. And obviously, you know, like Indians or just the West in general or zombies are kind of different versions of the same thing. And I think that that, that there's a kind of pessimism that sets into the country post civil rights act, you know, like, wait a minute, we're never going to fix this and have like a large portion of the country wants to kill each other. And I think that's where the zombie thing sort of erupts from, you know, there's kind of just pessimism about my fellow countrymen. Uh, I mean, same thing with the like Mad Max fantasy, I think is a similar thing as well, but I think they're all kind of rooted in the same thing. You know, that that is our American version of the knight in armor. Well, in the age of the uh, opioid epidemic, that's actually kind of like go to frickin' Flint, Michigan, or Saginaw, <laughs> yeah, or Pittsburgh, drive yeah. around, and it's literally zombies walking around. Yeah, but but everyone thinks Rick's grime is cool, and then I pull up my Colt Python and dome <laughs> someone in downtown Pittsburgh, yeah. and all of a sudden I'm the bad guy. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. You, uh, I was listening to your. I think it's probably your last conversation with Thomas, where you mentioned that desexification point, and uh, uh, I remember exactly where I was. I was out walking my dog at like midnight. And I remember exactly where I was when you talked about that, because as soon as you said it, it just it like lit off a bunch of fireworks in my head. And I immediately proceeded to type out literally the longest possible thread I could do on Twitter. Like it told me I couldn't add any more tweets to it. Um, but uh, one of the things that that clicked for me when you said that is I think that when the what was the, the initial tweet I said was um, the regime swallowed a poison pill when it included within its raison d'etre the desexification of its people, mm. because by desexifying women, you're like you're you're quite literally eliminating the future of your your society. Like there's like if women aren't having babies, then you're you've you've got an expiration date on on your society, which obviously leads to the. Uh, in part leads to the, the 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 impulse to import infinity migrants to to make up for it um but corresponding to that if you have if you don't have the 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 birth giver vitality instinct present and thriving within your society by definition your society is going to slowly grind grind into a collapse on the flip side they've also by desexifying men and teaching men to to not just avoid violence, but to completely abhor it. They've put themselves in a position now where they're, it's, it's a soft power regime that is, uh, uh, its entire predication is putting as many layers between the decision makers and the actual facts on the ground as possible to maintain that soft power, which just by itself is going to lead eventually to a point where 
your 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 feedback loops are going to get slower and slower because there's so many layers uh, between you and the facts on the ground. So it's going to breed inefficiency. Now they've got this global supply chain that's based on just in time. Um, everything is just in time, and it's like right on a razor's edge. And we saw what happened with COVID. That as soon as they start trying to use hot hot power or hard power, then everything starts to destabilize really quick. And there, it's a it's a it's primarily an economic regime. It's a, a regime of merchants, so they depend upon this this global order to maintain all of their all of their schemes. But now they've put themselves in a position where they're moving closer and closer to the point at which historically a regime would need to use hard power. But they've also this entire time been conditioning all of their loyalists that the use of hard power is immoral and cannot happen. And there's there's nobody within the regime proper who is, I guess, I guess you'd say skilled in the use of hard power. They've weeded all of those people out. So I think this is a, you could look at it as a black pill that, you know, when the shit hits the fan, there's not going to be anybody in charge. But I think I think the white pill side of it that you can also choose to look at is when the shit hits the fan, the only people who are going to know what they're doing, the competent people, the people who are actually fluent and have sat here and fantasized about these times are going to be the people who are against the regime. Yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting point. And I think that, you know, a lot of people in our sphere, this is connected, I promise. A lot of people in our sphere sort of went for like the WEF stuff, right? Went mm-hmm. for, you know, Klaus Schwab is behind all of this. I'm I'm unconvinced by that for a number mm-hmm. of reasons. Yep. But one of them is I look at Klaus Schwab and I see panic. Yes. I see, oh no, how are we going to solve these problems? And the dude was me, freaking out about libertarians. That's how pan like he actually thinks libertarians are a boogeyman or he or he has some incentive to try to rage against libertarians. Well, right. And so to me, I see that as he is selling something, which is you, the elite, can still stay in charge forever and have control over everyone. I think that's what he's selling, right? Now, when I look at the regime, I think that they have 100% swallowed that poison pill. And their bet is, oh, well, we can just import infinity South Americans to solve that problem. They have a higher birth rate. Therefore, that will increase you know, the population pyramid necessary to kind of keep this, actually speaking of nursing homes as a society, to keep social security and boomers housing prices from collapsing. To me, that is a very short-term strategy that I don't think is working. Because if you look at birth rates globally, and I'm talking even in, uh, shall we say, critically underdeveloped areas, for instance, in in, uh, sub-Saharan Africa, uh, everyone's trending down. And particularly in areas that are sort of less affected by modernity, right? People who haven't had some time to inoculate themselves, it is dropping like a rock. Now, don't get me wrong, that doesn't solve our particular acute problem, which is you know, uh, Uncle Joe decided it'd be real cool if we had, I don't know, 12 million new people come in. So that was a, a, a real gamer move. Uh, but effectively, right, what that does mean is that their bet won't work. Now, does that mean, therefore, things are going to be good for us? No, but it does mean that I think that they are playing the game badly. 
you know, when we look at this again, one of the things that I think about a lot is this idea that, you know, a, a place like America is a valuable place to rule, you know, setting aside human resources, which are significant. There are a lot of things here that it would be good to control. And so, again, valuable prizes don't tend to be held by incompetent people for very long. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean that our guys are going to be the ones who end up holding the bag. But I'm sort of in a position where there is very few things worse than what we currently have. Now, okay, obviously, like the Soviet NKVD could show up. That would be kind of bad. Uh, but, you know, short of that, it's like, I mean, to be honest, like I'd even take the Taliban. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, to be honest, right? Like, mm-hmm. and certainly, you know, you know, being Orthodox, right? Like, even the, the kind of Muslim hordes that we were kind of trained through the 2000s to regard as like the second coming of, you know, mustache man. It's like, well, okay, maybe paying a jizya and, you know, having to be like a dimmy is, is a little bit embarrassing, but like, okay, how much of your wages goes to, you know, trans kids? Realistically, how different is that? Like re- really like, mm. okay, we're going to take your kids and turn them trans. How different is that from them becoming janissaries? Like realistically, like it, and once we start to view things in those those terms, it's like, well, okay, like I, I've really failed to see how we could get a worse ruling class than the one we've had. Now, that doesn't mean that material conditions can't get worse, right? Look at South Africa, look at Brazil. Uh, but to me, I, I, I sort of see this as a group of people who are kind of got the tiger by the tail and they're ruling something dramatically bigger and dramatically richer than they have any right to. And so, you know, again, and I know you've done much more research into the PayPal mafia guys. I'm not going to speak on that. But I think that when we look at this, we've got to understand that the idea that politics could ever be monolithic is fake. You know, like the idea that there will be a one world government, you know, one regime is, is, is fake. And it's because that's not how humans organize themselves. There's always that incentive to split. There's always that incentive to make a run for the throne, right? Because there's power to be had, especially if your opponents are incompetent fools. You know, and the idea that, you know, elections are synonymous with politics is also kind of retarded. Like, look at China. Does China have elections? Not really. Does China have politics? Yes. It's Mm. just not in a way that its citizens interact with, right? There are a whole bunch of shady dealings going on. And if you, you know, read about this, you can hear about people being forced to retire and, you know, demoted and sent to like, you know, prison or whatever, and given commuted death sentences, all this weird Chinese stuff that I don't particularly understand, but it's very clear that politics is going on there, you know? And so when we look at our regime and the deal that they've made is to let in, you know, infinity South Americans, you know, just infinite numbers of people and and seed them all over the nation. They see that as securing themselves eternal power, right? We will be able to run this, this protection racket, this, this patronage network forever. Uh, but the problem is, right, they're decreasing their ability to fund it, increasing the number of outlays, and also not really solving their population pyramid problem. Because now you have even more people kind of like suckling at the, you know, the, the tea to welfare. And don't get me wrong, this, you know, this, this empire has gone through a lot. There's no scene. There's nothing that indicates to me that it's going to fall apart tomorrow. But these are not long-term moves, you know, and look, don't get me wrong. I think that that what we've seen happening in Ukraine and what we've seen happening in in Gaza are similar signs pointing to a deficit in long-term thinking. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I want this now. I want it like effectively, like not being able to tell yourself as the elite no. And uh, again, I see them making mistakes. Now, again, they're making mistakes with my country, which is not a particularly comfortable place to be in. But uh, I'll put it this way, a death to the empire. And I cannot wait for these people to be out of a job. <laughs> All right, we've got, uh, let me check the numbers here again. We've got 79 people watching and only 33 wake, 33, 33 wakes, 33 likes. So do us a favor, folks. Do your part. Hit like. Help us out. Give us our give us our YouTube currency. Um, <clears throat> so, have you seen this this video going around of uh, Mike Benz the the conversation he had with Tucker? Excuse me. No, I have not yet. Mm, okay. Um, I would actually say his one with Tucker is good, but he goes a lot more in depth in his conversation that he did with uh, uh, on the New Founding podcast, maybe three months or so ago. Oh yeah, and, I know that. I know those guys. I, I'll definitely give that a listen. Yeah, it's it's very interesting the way he lays out how um, the censorship re- regime was built and how careless and sloppy they were. In you, you could kind of see under the Obama administration, they sort of had this kind of end of history mentality about the way that they were. The, the way that they were approaching everything that they were doing, just kind of like he, he, they, they, they're well documented as saying, well, we don't have the, the political ability to, it's actually would be essentially illegal for us to do something like this through formal official means. So while we're getting the, the legal issues on it sorted out, we're going to do it through private means. Like they're just openly saying this in, um, at, at conferences and, 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 uh, the, wherever they go to, to jerk each other off. Um, and I, it, I was thinking about that in the context of kind of what you're talking about here, where it seems like the regime is getting increasingly reactive. It's becoming more and more reactive where instead of them being the ones that are setting the agenda and pursuing a, a very, you know, clearly people have the, the, the sense of these being like scheming Machiavellian, um, overlords, when in reality, the competency crisis is very real, and it's almost more real anywhere else. It, it, it's almost more real within the halls of the regime than anywhere else. And you can see this now in the fact that they, they're, they're, they're making moves. I think of Trump's, uh, what, $355 million fine um, or whatever it was, uh, Elon Musk the the one Delaware judge stripping him of his compensation package that like eighty percent of Tesla shareholders voted for, like these are these each of these things may not be the biggest deal in and of itself, but this is this reeks to me of people that are so high on their own supply that they don't actually appreciate how tenuous their position is, because these are these are. They're, they're starting to piss off the wrong people. They're pissing off people who can actually do something about it. People who might ostensibly be allies, but who now like Fortune 500 CEOs are like, okay, so when's my compensation package going to be taken away? You've got, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, the guy from Shark Tank, um, who was like freaking out on a live interview about how he's pulling all of his operations out of New York. He doesn't want to have anything to do with New York. He doesn't want to have any business there. He's going to recommend everybody he knows to not go do business there. Now he's he's a you know, quote unquote right wing guy. I saw him at Freedom Fest before, 
Um, so it's not like he's a he's like a core regime insider, but he's kind of a squish. So these are all moves that that look to me like reactionary moves by a people who genuinely feel like they're under a, they're under attack. They're genuinely trying to defend their own turf, and they're getting more and more. I, I guess, uh, kind of unhinged in how they're going about it and actually creating more of a pretext for people to start moving against them. What do you, what do you think? Well, well certainly. Right. So I, I've got a, a friend of mine, he's a little bit older. He's in his, his early fifties and he is part of a generationally wealthy American family. He is, I think seventh or eighth generation Harvard doctor, very, very successful, very intelligent man. And it's interesting talking to him because his kids, despite also being incredibly intelligent, you know, very accomplished, didn't get into Harvard for about the reasons you can surmise. Uh, But it's interesting talking to him because he grew up in that culture, obviously deeply connected to old WASP culture. But his parents, when he was young, moved away from Massachusetts to a tiny you know, a tiny little farm town in Southwest Virginia. And so he grew up on a farm with, you know, chickens and dogs, you know, running around. That's how his kids grew up. And so it's interesting because he's, he said, like, when I went there, you know, we spent six years, you know, for, for undergrad and medical school. Uh, those people are like, that culture is sick. I think the average TFR, you know, fertility rate for his graduating class at Harvard is hovering around like 0. 0.6, 0. 0.7. Jeez. And these are, at the time, the best and brightest, right? The elite of the elite, the best, best school literally the IQ shredder, right? To, to quote Scandrel. Yeah. And so what he's saying is that like, look, like that culture is dead and dying. You know, and so when I mentioned earlier that there's like some mercy to this whole situation, it's like, that's dead wood. You know, there's nothing to it. And this guy got out, right? He's had four kids, you know, he's doing great in a, you know, a conservative church and like he made it out. But him looking back, he looks at that institution and says it needs to burn, you know, because they they took the good in it, right? And now, just a few generations after those people who wouldn't reproduce, it's been taken over by, you know, like asexual gender goblins, you know, like we keep going back to, right? These kind of like, like foot soldiers of the regime. And in a weird way, you know, I don't want to get into the kind of like conservative like scalp taking over Claudine Gay resigning because there's sort of another force at work there. But in a weird way, right, she is so emblematic of everything our regime has become. Right? Yeah. Someone elevated so far above their their natural ability and natural stature, sitting in a chair quite literally that they they should not be sitting in. And so you you look at a place like Harvard and like what do, what do we do with an institution like that? Like certainly it is you know, given us great things as a nation, you know, certainly people I like people who I, you know, on both a personal and like an intellectual level, owe a lot to, you know, have gone there, but that is a, it's, it's moribund. It's rotten. You know, there, there's something there that needs to be done away with. And I think that it's hard for us as traditionalists, as right wingers to basically look at something that used to be good and say, like, it needs to go, it needs to die. And there's a difference between, I think, a revolution and a rebellion. In that, that both of them are kind of a casting off of an authority from a certain perspective, right? And this is actually why I don't consider the American Revolution to be a revolution in the true sense. But 
you know, the revolution is this kind of like complete restructuring of the way humans interact, right? It's connected to an ideology, whether it be, you know, whether it be kind of this like you know, fascism or, or communism or you know, libertarianism, any one of these, right? And it's this idea that this is an idea that will fundamentally reorder human society and change how people interact, it will save the world, you know? And don't get me wrong, we as Americans have certainly fallen prey to any number of those. But the other one is this rebellion, right? And it's why that figure of Robin Hood is such an important totem, right? Because yes. Robin Hood is a yes. rebel, right? He's the main My spirit animal, dude. Exactly. Uh, to go back, Ernst Younger, the forest rebel, is sort of this referring to the same, the same idea, like the anarch, right? Yep. But that is not a figure who is tearing things down. They're sort of waiting for a you know, a good man to return to the throne. And at the end, you know, of, of the book or the, the movie, however you choose to, you know, to, to consume Robin Hood's story, right? He doesn't stay in the woods. You know, he comes out from his rebellion. He sort of hangs up his, his bow and exactly reintegrates with society. And, and so to me, I think that's the situation we, we kind of find ourselves in, right? Is we're in the woods, you know, and obviously, you know, the, the cowboy, the, the, the woodsman is sort of an extension of that Robin Hood archetype, mostly because you know, there are a lot of the same people, right? It's, it's Anglo types, but I think that that is, you know, sort of the, the situation we, we, we find ourselves in, I guess. So what I am saying is yes, steal from the government. That's exactly what I meant. <laughs> you can get pretty creative with that nowadays. Yeah. It turns out those, those, uh, COVID loans, you could literally buy whatever you want with them. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, I didn't get the memo. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, yeah, that it's kind of seemed like that may have been a, uh, uh, a particular policy for a particular people. I don't know. Maybe not. Um, there's a, a phenomenon I've been kind of starting to pick up on recently. I've only seen maybe blips of it, but I'm, it, it, I don't know. Something's kind of starting to come together for me. Um, this this term democracy is a uh, I, it's become uh, like a, a complete bad word and I think for very valid reasons uh, within the right people talk about democracy and it just gets it's shoved away it's equivalent to communism like we understand all of the all of the arguments against democracy however what I'm starting to pick up on seems to be I guess you might say like a maybe like a reterritorialization of the term democracy because it's become so meaningless to where, where democracy now, when, you know, when the, when the, the regime press says, you know, saving our democracy or Elizabeth Warren's talking about our democracy is in peril. What to them, democracy means rule by the oligarchs. It's, it's, it's plutocracy, which is, which is clearly there's even the, you have the, the like the high low coalition on the blue side is like the people at the bottom are the ones who genuinely believe in democracy, uh, you know, quote unquote, and they're they they see it as like the expression of the will of the people or whatever. And then the 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 high part of the coalition is you know it's it's plutocracy. In listening to some of the stuff that Vivek has said, Vivek Ramaswamy, and then in particular listening to Bukele talk, I'm starting to sense that we're seeing a right-wing re-territorialization of the term democracy to mean the power of the people to vest their authority in an autocratic dictator. Do you, and, and, and if that's the case, then far be it from me to try to autistically argue with them about how no, actually democracy means all these other sorts of things. 
I, I'm kind of like, okay, don't you know, don't don't mess with them while they're working, and let's see what happens. What are what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, certainly, right, and I think that it's it's important to to kind of contextualize those attacks on democracy. Like, what are they for? And it's like, well, is it, is it to win an argument? Like, okay, maybe, you know, but uh, we've, we've all left our autistic libertarian days behind us. And so we need to re recognize that it's like, okay, like, well, what matters more? You know, being kind of like dictionary definition right about this uh, or not losing. And uh, to be honest, uh, the right, you know, our people have lost a whole lot uh, over the last 70 years, and I'd like to stop doing that. And so I see your point, right? That's definitely part of it. Uh, I think another another part of that comes down to like a certain degree of honesty, right? That effectively that kind of mandate to empower a strong man is basically what we have anyway. Mm -hmm. It's just, we put a lot of like weird gay facades over top of it and pretend there's some kind of like magical like transubstantiation of power somewhere in there. Mm. This is not true. That's not how it works. You can't transfer power. Someone has it. And so to me, if the justification, the political formula, to use a term from Mosca, for, you know, uh, American Caesar is, well, you all voted for me, therefore I get to stay in power forever. Awesome. That worked for another uh, prominent dictator you'll be familiar with uh, from Austria. And so my point is, it's like, okay, I don't really care. At this point, again, it goes back to like, would you actually take the Ottoman Turks over our current government? It's like, yeah, okay. And if I've already made that concession where it's like, I'd literally rather be ruled by like a, a hostile religious group. Wait a minute. Uh, you know, like, I, okay, sure. Like I, and to me, it's like, is this an academic distinction? Probably to someone, but like, what is the point of this academic distinction, right? It's either to facilitate a conversation in which case, you know, you and I are on the same terms and it's like, okay, we know what's going on here when a Caesar figure exists, right? They're using that as a justification to get a giant stick and beat my enemies with it. And it's like, you know what? Godspeed. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm obviously the last couple of months, there's been a, uh, a whole lot of stuff going on with this PayPal mafia thing that, um, I just kind of sort of started talking about kind of offhand and, and then other people started picking up on it. And then I had, I've just been inundated with people sending me messages, people who are in all sorts of different uh, walks of life, uh, experts in particular fields who are all saying, hey, here's something to add to the to the picture. Here's something I've been tracking that that fleshes out this this picture even more. And it's getting to where I'm I'm I've had this sense of the regime as operating in kind of a lame duck status for a while now. And that's becoming clearer and clearer to me. Now, I don't want to. I don't want to say that this is. I think when people, when people hear some of us talking about this PayPal mafia thing, they're they're perceiving this in sort of Q terms, where it's like there's this, you know, this organized, coordinated cabal that are, you know, they're all meeting in dark rooms and mapping all this stuff out, and they've got contingency plans on contingency plans, and yada 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 yada. And I don't. That's. I don't think that's what it is. I think there's some coordination. There definitely is. There's there's clearly some coordination among some people, but I think it's more a matter of uh, a significant number of uh, institutional power brokers recognizing that the current state of things is unsustainable and that it, we it, something has to change. And a big thing that has to change is that the people who have been 
ruling over us, this sort of neoliberal, naive boomer idealism mentality that's bred all the wokeness and the DEI and ESG and all these sorts of things, that's actually starting to threaten their economic interests. It's threatening the stability of their their global supply chains, their currency stability. All these things are starting to be threatened by this 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 craziness. And so they they're sort of aligning around uh, mutual incentives, whether they're explicitly cooperating or not, kind of makes no difference. But what they do want to see is an overturning of the existing regime structure and regime function. They want to restore competency to uh, the administration and its proxies, and they want a more stripped down, functional, effective organization that can get back to building shit because you got to have the number go up thing that has to happen in order to maintain these things. So it's not that I see these people as as our friends. It's that I see them as enemies of our enemies. And if they want to if they want to mow the road down in front of us, I'm I'm happy to let them. And I I've I've wrestled with how much to talk about this publicly. Um, because I mean, it's just me, this little little podcast. So at the same time, I've, there's a whole bunch of people that are all picking up on this now, and I'm like, oh, I don't know if I necessarily like. Are they better operating, you know, more or less in secret and being able to sort of do this stuff without having to deal with the the direct frontal political concerns? Um, but I guess it's all a long way of saying. I think where where I've landed is recognizing that the way things are going is on net positive, in my opinion, given where we are now, but it's going to look very different than anybody's thought about or anybody has really expected. And I see a lot of our guys not recognizing where it's going. And so then something like this, like this democracy thing, they hear that and they go, oh, this guy's a, this guy's a shit lib. Um, but there's something deeper going on here. There's a there's something that's very significant, and I think you can't ignore that. The autism sort of wants to make make you partition everything off and give it its own little place and identify all these these elements in a vacuum. But they have to be united together, and that that's what. Um, yeah. Anyways, that was that was that was kind of my my reasoning behind this thinking about this democracy thing. <clears throat> yeah, certainly. I, I think that to me, I look at. Like the PayPal mafia is a, is a possible counter elite. When I'm looking at signals, right, leading t reading tea leads, it seems to me that the regime is going after these guys' hammer and tongs. Mm -hmm. You see that in a couple ways. One, Elon Musk has been hit with like lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit, which is part of it. But also, the regime has now signaled that owning Teslas are bad. You know, if you're a cool mm. regime person, you don't own a Tesla. Uh, I say this because my liberal friends have either sold their Teslas or have started putting bumper stickers on their Teslas saying, oh, we, we didn't know he was like this. <laughs> uh, so that's part of it, right? Which is the social Thanks. status. Yeah, 100%. But the social status is sort of a leading indicator. Mm -hmm. right? That's how the regime leads people around by the nose. Uh, so that's part of it. I think that to me, if you ask me, what is the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years like? I'm not particularly optimistic. I look at a place like South Africa and I think that's probably what our, what, you know, a certain part of my life looks like, but I look at a situation where nobody is producing competent elites. Nobody is producing hard men because that requires several things, which is one, uh, it requires just like conditions to get worse. I think that's happening. Whoop-de-doo. And then another part is, 
basically an answer for what is the point of life, you know, and our elite has completely made that impossible. But I look at kind of us and ours and we've got a ready made answer, you know, and so I think that's one reason why you see young men like like Cooper and I kind of flocking here because it's like, well, okay, what's the other option? It's the it's the Reddit goon cave. Right. And yep. it's like, okay, well, that has certain a certain level of attraction to it, but it's kind of a depressing thing to devote your entire life to versus oh, yeah. like, yeah. hey, uh, your opponents like Satan. Uh, and, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They eat babies. Yeah. And God is on your side. So, like, you know, that's kind of fun. Uh, but I think that when I look at this in kind of generational terms, I think that I, I kind of view my role as one kind of getting through the genetic bottleneck, right? Getting through this mind virus. Okay, that's one. And then sort of, you know, it's kind of roughly paraphrased ball, kind of stand in the gate, right? That essentially like our job is to sort of act as, you know, the, the torchbearer, right? That things around us are sort of, you know, falling apart. The center cannot hold to kind of, you know, quote Yates again. And well, what, what are we left to do, right? It's to a certain level, it's preserve, you know, prepare, and then also essentially set up a situation where we can train up, you know, the next Caesar, because the Caesar may not be my age, but he might be my son's age. You know, maybe, maybe he will be that Napoleon. And so to me, I think that, you know what, if, if the PayPal mafia manages to do it, they fix it all. Great. Godspeed. I, I'd love for that to happen. And I do think that we're seeing some jockeying in the elite per, precisely along those lines, right? That they're, their professed moral propositions are eating away at their ability to, you know, to sort of produce power, right. To produce control. Uh, I mean, you've actually seen a similar thing with Claudine Gay, right. Uh, She got yanked out of there and fast once she, you know, sort of touched a a third rail. Uh, So who knows, right. I, I would certainly love to be, wrong i i realized that just kind of temperamentally by being kind of like a reformed christian calvinist type that i'm not kind of predisposed to a rosy picture of the future right? <laughs> my biases but i do think there are certainly things to look forward to i think that we are we are entering a time of adventure you know this kind of like lied into mediocrity this kind of eternal nursing home that we were sort of promised as like the point of you know the end goal of life is a false god and and thankfully so. And it's not even going to be an option for us to delude ourselves. with. So, you know, we're going to, we're, like I said before, like we're going to get an adventure whether we want it or not. <laughs> Random username in the chat said, print off stickers to place next to the, I didn't know he was like this uh, bumper stickers, print off stickers that say I would have bought more Tesla stock. <laughs> I will say that I think getting into a, a coolness war with uh with elon musk if your goal is to is to capture the hearts and minds of the next generation trying to get into a coolness war with elon musk probably isn't going to work out all that well the guy that's like building robots and trying to send rockets to mars and shit posting on twitter and it, it just seems to me like another another uh bit of evidence pointing toward their inability to control themselves um one other thing for for people, I might I might wind up uh, we might do a, an entire show on this subject. I got to understand it a little bit better. But a a final white pill here for you guys before we start wrapping is uh, go on Twitter and look up the word gundo, G U N D O. 
I had no idea what this was. I kept seeing people talking about Gundo, and I'm like, what the fuck is Gundo? Why are people talking about this? And it turns out there was a hackathon in El Segundo uh, this last weekend. And it there's there's some interesting rabbit holes you can start going down. They're dealing with uh, young men in the tech sector focusing on uh, uh, defense technology. And uh, the their their entire vibe is just just peak Zoomer internet. It is absolutely phenomenal. There's a uh, a general partner for uh, Andreessen Horowitz, Catherine Boyle, had a really interesting talk that she gave at some VC conference or something a few months ago called American Dynamism. And I strongly recommend go listen to her talk. It was probably, I don't know, uh, 15, 20 minutes, something like that. Uh, this is this is some strong signaling, and this is from a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz. This isn't this isn't uh, an insignificant person, but she uh, someone tweeted a, a recap thread of the of the Gundo uh, weekend, and she said she quoted it: "The story being told in Gundo is a compelling one. Build for your country, build for your family, focus on things that are real, work hard, work out, live clean, call bullshit where you see it." And she said, amen, with a, a an American flag emoji, a flexing emoji, and a rocket emoji. So even just the aesthetics of this, we're, we're, we're seeing a, a, a revival of you know good old Americana aesthetics. And to me, I think aesthetics are important. So I think that uh, just taking on those aesthetics itself is, is likely to be uh, pretty transformative. Uh, I TK- can't wait, man. I can't. I want everyone wearing blue jeans and tucked in white t-shirts and pompadours. It's gonna be fucking awesome. <laughs> Some of the one of the guys in there has a uh, uh, like blonde blonde mullet that is just cafe racers phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. Like blonde mullet with high top uh, 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 van, uh, not vans. Um, just completely slipped my mind. The black and white shoes. Converse. Converse. Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. Black and white high top converse with a with a, a blonde mullet. Like this is these are these are vibes. Uh TK super chat to two US dollars. He says the age of the false emperor is over at last. From your lips to God's ears. Jay Burden, uh looks like we are two minutes away from your this beginning of your stream. So why don't you tell all the fine people if you have any any final thoughts and then uh, tell the fine people where they can find you. Yeah, so you can find my show, the creatively named Jay Burden Show, on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts. Uh, I do post the audio version first. I'm trying to push more traffic on the audio platform because audio is just way better than YouTube. YouTube is, uh, our time on here is limited for reasons you can probably guess if you've heard me talk for the last hour. Uh, I also have a Substack, Jay Burden Show on Substack. I try to put out one or two articles a week. And uh, again, that's that's my my primary platforms where you can find me. And uh, again, guys, I appreciate your time so much. This is a really fun conversation. Yeah, Thanks, absolutely. Man. Yeah, this cool. has been fantastic. We've got to we've got to burn another sixty seconds or so. So give us one last white pill before we leave. Uh, well, one last white pill is that uh, they're remaking Blade. Mm, really. Yeah, I don't know. I I got nothing. I that's just my, my one cultural guy. touchdown. Yeah, I know exactly. <laughs> they got uh they got Ryan it... Gosling playing it. Seriously? <laughs> in shoe polish, yeah. Are, are no. you memeing or is no, this? No, that's not a bit not true. Oh. Not like some yeah. yeah, once you said shoe polish. Really? <laughs> Sorry to just ruin the joke. Oh <laughs> man. Right.
<laughs> well, Ryan Gosling was was maybe uh, was maybe believable, but then uh, the shoe polish thing that yeah, I was, I was making a joke. It's like any time that it's uh, Black History Month, and they inevitably kind of like race swap a character. Someone photoshops, you know, Ryan Gosling is MLK, or you know, like <laughs> you know, like. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's just a stupid joke. Right? <laughs> anyway, guys, again, I, I appreciate it so much. This was a great conversation. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Later, uh, thank you, guys. Thank you for listening. We will catch you next time.